Hello, my name is Adam Eason. Welcome to episode 26 of Hypnosis Weekly. Hello Hypnosis friends and a very, very warm welcome to Hypnosis Weekly. Once again, in my own highly biased opinion, I think I have a smasher of a show lined up for you today. In a short while, I'll be sharing with you an interview with hypnotherapist, coach and barrister Lucy Hyde. Then I'll be looking at the hypnosis in the news stories, examining the media where hypnosis is featured. I'm going to offer up some personal subjective commentary on the ways hypnosis is portrayed in the media, but also comment on some of the content of those media stories. We then return with our professional discussion with my guest Lucy Hyde this week. We shall be exploring what coaching is, how it is applicable to hypnotherapists, and how it can be used within the work of a hypnotherapist. We'll round things off with this week's hypnosis factoid before I bid you farewell for another week. This podcast is something that I want to encompass a feeling of embracing diversity, celebrating the field of hypnosis and encouraging friendly, professional, enjoyable discussion and debate, as well as doing its best to inform and educate. I do not share the same stance as most of our guests and at times have major differences in approach and leaning, but all are incredibly lovely people who I'd happily talk with until late in the pub, and all of whom, following their time here on Hypnosis Weekly, I have great respect for. If you have questions, queries, thoughts or feedback, do get in touch via the Hypnosis Weekly website. All the references made in the discussions along with the related links are posted at each episode on the website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. You can add your thoughts, comments and make any suggestions there too. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else to help us reach more of the Hypnosis community. It's greatly appreciated. So first of all today is this week's interview. I'm delighted to be welcoming Lucy Hyde. I have been a friend and a colleague of Lucy's for a number of years now. At the end of a diploma module that I was running that Lucy had been helping me with, she told me that she had a client after class and needed to, to get away on time. I watched her meet with her client and stroll outside onto the beach in her bare feet with a client for the session together. And I was intrigued with this. I mean, where was her reclining chair and her dimmer light switch? I've continued to pester Lucy for information about what she does and enjoyed our discussion so much that I really wanted her to come and be part of this podcast. We'll be discussing that side of her work later on in today's professional discussion. Lucy writes beautifully and from the heart and lays herself bare whilst also continuing to be a very strong woman. She trained as a barrister, not the coffee making type, but the type who hang out in courtrooms. And we explore that a bit here too. Get comfy, my friends. Turn up the volume. Sip on your tea. Enjoy this week's interview. So, as I've just been discussing, I'm here with the one and only Lucy Hyde. Welcome to Hypnosis Weekly, Lucy. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for having me on. So, um, let's get straight into it. Um, 
tell me, how did you get into this field? You know, tell us a little bit about your background and how you arrived at where you are now doing what you do. Um, well, I, I come from a background uh, in law. Um, I spent 10 years and wound up as a, a specialist family law barrister. Mm. Um, yeah, it's around. It's not thing. typical of hypnotherapists. <laughs> no, it's not. Um, I, I had this idea um, late in my teenagers that I wanted to live my life on my own terms. And I mm. thought that, um, you know, a good profession would be to, um, you know, earn lots of money, have lots of status and, uh, yeah, and have a job that essentially you're unsackable from working for myself. Mm. So I thought that would be a great idea. And I got into it and it was fabulous. And sort of 10 years in, I kind of realized that I wasn't experiencing uh, the level of freedom that I'd wanted from that. Mm. So I was working, yeah, so I was working long hours, uh, you know, sometimes 70, 90 hour weeks, sometimes uh, weekends, evenings, and not really seeing my family as much as I wanted. Mm. Um, so I kind of got fed up with that and thought, God, what, what else is out there? Um, and actually, I got so fed up with it that I just, uh, back in 2010, I just jumped without anything to jump into and did that classic thing of, I'm going to go and find myself, you know. Yeah. So I, <laughs> yeah, so I <laughs> failed around for like a year not really knowing what to do. And uh, then I bumped into my aunt, who I hadn't seen in ages, um, and she'd just done an NLP training uh, with Richard Bandler. Yeah. And she was enthusing about this. And she's not a particularly enthusiastic person, generally. Um, and she was saying, God, you've got to go and train in this. You know, she explained some stuff about it. And so I went off and I, I read some books and listened to some videos and things. I thought, God, this sounds like a good idea. It really helped me with my mindset in that place that I was, you know, feeling kind of lost and disempowered. And so from there, I looked around for, for a course to learn NLP. And I wanted to do it in a kind of credible way and learn as much as I could about that sort of industry, you know, sort of dealing with personal development. And that's how I stumbled across you and your course. Mm. and thought, oh, hypnosis. I could do hypnosis as well. Um, that'd be really interesting to find out about, um, you know, how the unconscious mind works and how to put people in trance. Well, I've been in class. <laughs> yeah. So I've been in class with you all of about half an hour and that kind of put pay to those ideas. But when I discovered what it was actually about um, and what you can actually do with hypnosis, I, I knew there and then that I would always use hypnosis in one way or another yeah. um, with whatever I decided to do. So I um, went through that training. It was fantastic. And at that time, I also met a, a fairly uh, famous coach and learned coaching through him as well. Um, and yeah, so, so came out the other side of it, personally transformed and kind of excited about a new career, um, which really is on my own terms. I love it. You know, I choose yeah. my own hours and clients and it's fantastic. So um, and, um, just, 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 to give, just to give listeners an idea, just a sense of the woman that we are dealing with here. That all those years ago when you did train with my um with my college and with me um, um i remember you nipping off in the breaks to go and feed your baby um who was two weeks old yeah two weeks old um um, um you know I, I was just so utterly impressed with this that you were doing this study at the same time as having your third child um, um, um anyway anyway we'll get on to the, the the kind of more of the kind of woman you are later on <laughs> yeah I mean it was it was a, the, the study coming from an academic background as I mm. do I really expected the study to be quite woolly you know we'd all sit around in a circle and learn you know learn things about ourselves I had no idea of, of the kind of evidence base um, behind this field 
Um, and the more I learned, the more exciting I found it. So, yeah, I mean, um, motivated as I am, uh, you know, it was tough doing it with a newborn, but it was definitely, definitely worth it because I've been able to um, embark on my uh, third time round in motherhood, um, being able to balance work and family life really beautifully well. Yeah, yeah, and and we're going to explore. Um, we're going to explore the coaching because you, you know, I mean, anybody that reads your reads your articles, um, which which are just brilliant, and 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 look and examines your work. You know, you have a, you have a strong leaning with regards to the coaching, and we're going to look at um, we're going to look at that and and how you incorporate some of that into your work. So I I, I, don't, I don't want to probe too much with regards to that. Um, so so just kind of with regards to hypnosis, then. Tell us a little bit, you know, with, with regards to your own journey, how, how, how do you define hypnosis today, you know, and, and how did you arrive at this definition? And, you know, when you have clients or you're at a dinner party or something, how do you explain it to, to, to others? Um, gosh, you know, that's probably the, the toughest question, isn't it? Because people do squabble about the definition of hypnosis. And I think they do. not having a, a standard definition is something that kind of holds the field back. But um, my my own definition of hypnosis is probably uh, not particularly popular. Um, I do love uh, Irving Kirsch's description of it as being a, a non-deceptive mega placebo. I you know I absolutely yeah. love that, and I am also aware that it really riles people sometimes. You know because yeah. because of this you know idea that actually no, it's not. It's not a placebo. It's more important than that. You know we have an unconscious mind, and it's benevolent, and it does all these wonderful things for us. Um, but it's you know unknowable and separate somewhere inside. Hmm. Or that hypnosis requires some kind of ritualistic um, induction of a trance state. It simply doesn't, you know. Hmm. And to feel affronted by the idea that hypnosis is is using the same mechanism as placebo, it's a huge underestimation of the power of the placebo effect. Yeah. Which is massive, you know, causing physiological changes just with your mind. I mean, that's huge. Hmm. So we don't really know how the placebo effect works, but we do know you know, that the mind through the use of focus and, and expectation can cause all sorts of changes, including healing, you know, so, you know, often, you know, as effectively as, as pharmaceuticals. So, mm. you know, so it's, it's wonderful to be able to engage that kind of mysterious effect and do it on purpose, you know, without yeah. kind of ritual um, added to it. So in terms of describing hypnosis, I usually will describe it that way. I don't feel that I can necessarily define it. I can say some of the things that go into it, you know, so complete singular focus, expectation, those sorts of things. Yeah. Um, but in defining hypnosis, I tend to focus more on the things that it isn't. So um, dispelling the idea of this benevolent unconscious mind um, or any idea of, of someone else being in control uh, of someone's mind in any way. Yeah. Because I think those two things can potentially be the most, um, well, some of the most damaging things to our field because it's, you know, it's mysterious and it, people can be a little bit scared of that. And it's such a shame because everyone's got this kind of powerhouse um, of available um, resources within them and, and avoid tapping into it because it just seems a little bit woo or a little bit scary, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, I mean, lovely to hear. Um, um, you know, with regards to that then, um, um, tell us, tell us about some of your influences. You know, tell us about um, um, what's what's not not just influenced your, your your sort of thoughts on what hypnosis is, but you know what's what's influenced you and and the direction your career has gone in, and 
you know, are, are there any kind of books and authors that have taught you and teachers that have been influential upon you and give us some sort of an idea with regards to that? Um, yeah, well, as I said, Irving Kirsch and his work about the, the response expectancy theory um, yeah. was, was pretty powerful yeah. for me. So the idea that what people perceive and what they experience largely depends on what they expect to perceive and, and experience. So, mm. um, you know, for, for, for me, in terms of coaching, it doesn't, it's you know, wider than therapy. So in terms of coaching, in terms of changing people's expectations of what they can achieve and what they can experience, you know, even at the very highest level of, of entrepreneurship um, and creatives, people come into blocks and having that idea um, that you know, change your expectations and you change your experience is is um, you know incredibly powerful. Yeah. yeah. Um, and yeah, I mean, in a similar vein, you know, very classic stuff. Um, Albert Ellis and uh, um, his his ideas in REBT. Um, you know, so that that lovely light bulb moment where people first understand that it's it's not the situation, but their beliefs about the situation that causes um, a subjective experience. Yeah. You know, um, after we've been in this field a while, you kind of forget that you at one point didn't know that and you take it yeah. and then you come across somebody who just doesn't have a clue and they they've got this this idea that oh you know this happened and therefore of course I'm feeling this way um helping people to connect with themselves and really take ownership of their subjective experiences is massive you know if you came away with nothing else from a, a hypnotherapy training or any therapy training except that you'd still have done a fantastic job you know yeah 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 um, um you know i i love i love both of those um both those sources and both of the the, the ways in which they've they've influenced you um yeah. yeah so um in terms of coaching i mean <laughs> possibly contrarily i i love the um work of joseph campbell yeah. um, his idea of a monomyth and that is almost completely anti a lot of the other stuff that i like that's very hardcore and evidence-based but yeah. joseph campbell I, I think was quite heavily influenced by Jungian psychology. Um, but his his research in terms of the monomyth, that there's some underlying story around some of the most motivation, motivational and inspiring stories in the world. Yeah. Um, you know, so the story of the Christ, the Buddha, and also, you know, the Hobbit and Star Wars, right? Yeah. <laughs> still have the, the same kind of theme behind them of a, a hero, hero who journeys into the unknown, um, meets a mentor and, and does some deep personal change work to to experience and learn something new that they then bring back into their own world. Yeah. Um, in in terms of coaching, that's just incredibly powerful and motivational to bring to people. So you know, I love the that. hero's journey type yeah. stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So that yeah, that's another name for the for the monomyth. They're kind of interchangeable. Yeah. So I absolutely love that. Um, you know, even though it is a little bit woo, it's great. <laughs> mm, mm. Um, and I suppose a more contemporary influence of mine would be the work of Brene Brown, who has just kind of come onto the scene with quite a storm in the last few years with her work on vulnerability. Um, that's huge. You know, for me, it was, it was personally a, a massive change, really engaging with her work. Um, and the idea that people feel that they need to be seen in a certain way, right, and yes. that they feel an internal conflict and a huge disconnect with who they actually are. So it's not okay to show up exactly as you are. Mm. Um, so it's about developing a, a courage to be seen, really seen um, at your deepest level um, and banishing ideas of perfectionism that you can just show up and rock it as you are. I, you know, I think that is so incredibly powerful mm. and the ideas of getting rid of perfectionism and it being okay to be at where you're at um, 
it's, it's fantastic in any in any change work circumstance. I mean, you um, you wrote an article um, on, on this subject a while ago that I will, um, and with your permission, give and um, put a link to um, um, under this episode because um, I, I, I thought that just really really summed up um, and, and helped me with my own. Um, clarification with regards to you know the value of vulnerability in 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 a personal development context yeah by means do that um it's a fantastic thing and you know i i tell everyone i can about it um renee brown has has brought out a book called daring greatly i Mm. quite often send that to my clients if they're struggling to understand what the concept of vulnerability is and how it could help them yeah 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 um um so with regards to with regards to hypnosis, then, um, 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 what have been some of the most um, um, or, 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 or one of the most impressive applications of hypnosis that you've directly witnessed that you've sort of encountered? Gosh, um, it's all a bit impressive, isn't it? Um, you know, particularly if you come from a, a standpoint of not knowing anything about or not knowing very much about hypnosis, and you mm. use um, some type of phenomena and it, it's just mind-blowing you know it, it's fantastic yeah. I mean for, for me personally I think some of the most impressive stuff are the, are the physiological changes that we can cause with our minds I mean these are just astounding I mean I love hearing anecdotal stories from people and how they use hypnosis and things but um, I also love stuff that you can show and prove and a while back I was um, I was playing around uh, with a thermal imaging camera you know because I'm a geek yeah. And and thought, you know, I wonder what would happen if I did a glove anesthesia and had a look at the temperature um, through this thermal imaging camera. Mm. And slowly but surely, you can see the, the temperature um, in the hand that you are focusing on. You know, in my mind at the time, it was in a bucket of ice water being encased in ice. And, and the hand it was just slowly losing temperature. And to be a- able to actually see that through thermal imaging, I just thought was incredible. Yeah. So that yeah, comes- wow. Yeah, applications with pain. I mean, in class, we've seen so many times people having big needles stuck through their hands and arms. Not that I'm trying to put anyone off coming to you, <laughs> but you know, you don't feel it. Um, yeah. All you hear is kind of a crunch pop where the needle comes. <laughs> and that, yeah, um, and yeah, being able to act, act absolutely kind of cut off pain um, is mind-boggling. Yeah. Um, and strength. You know, I've I've uh, started working out. Um, at my local gym and I've, I've hired a PT uh, because, you know, I'm, I'm really new to it. And one of the, I'm getting a reputation at my local gym because one of the things that I thought, gosh, wouldn't it be interesting if it could really affect your strength level? So I did a couple of experiments with, with my personal trainer about um, imagining herself as extremely strong or imagining herself as extremely weak. Um, and you know, the, the, this gym is you know, full of like, really buff people. It's not a gym that you would go to and, and play around with pink dumbbells. And you know, <laughs> so, so guys sort of lifting, like deadlifting, heavy weights and stuff. Um, you know, just like a warm up weight, you can have it glued to the floor and they cannot move it. And yet, if you, with the right suggestion and the right mindset, these guys are, um, are making new personal bests. Mm. Um, yeah. And nothing has changed. Their fitness hasn't changed. It's just in the mind. Mm. Um, and seeing that happen in action is just brilliant. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, I, I love hearing that kind of stuff. Um, <laughs> I really do. Um, you, you know, I, I was teaching in Edinburgh last week. And I also joke a little bit about 
um, about, you know, you made reference to hypnotic phenomena, for example, when you're working, and, and, and I was working with an entire room of people with hands stuck to, <laughs> hands stuck to tables and stuck to their legs and things. And, <laughs> and you know, it, as well as being quite surreal, you know, I, I often joke, you know, when you, when you get home tonight, you're better, you know, hi, honey, how was your day? Great. This guy helped me stick my hand to the table. <laughs> um, and, and the kind of surrealness of that um, 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 obviously seems quite bizarre, but also, you know, wow, <laughs> you know, I'm, sat in a, I'm sat in a room. Um, a lot of people, have, you know, believe their hands are stuck to the table. You know, yeah. uh, this is the field we work in. Um, yeah. Now, if you could go back to when you started out as a hypnotherapist or as, as, as a hypnosis professional and, and knowing what you know now, um, is there anything that you'd do differently? And if so, what is it? And and would you extend any advice, you know, the, or, or rather that the person that you are today, would you extend some advice to that younger you that you could share with other hypnotherapists of today? Gosh, loads. Uh, yeah, absolutely. There, there's so much that you can learn in a classroom. Yeah. And then the learning process starts all over again when you actually get out and start seeing clients. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I would have... Uh, love to have had um yeah I would have loved to have known from my future self um, that I could choose my clients I think would be one thing um you know so when I started out I had all this kind of energy I wanted to help everybody and very quickly found that you know I you know it's easy to get burnt out that I felt that I had to sort of take on everybody and some people were less ideal than others some people inspired me less than others, if I'm if I'm truly honest. Yeah. And the way that I've moved my practice now, I only work with expi- inspiring people, people who I who I go, oh, I can't believe I get to spend the day with you. This is awesome. Um, so that for for me was was a uh, a strong direction. And you know, don't let yourself get burnt out. That that's something that happens really quite quickly. Um, you know, if you if you are seeing lots and lots and lots of clients in one day. Just simple things like, you know, don't put depressed clients next to each other um, because it, it can be really quite heavy going. Um, so, yeah, so don't let yourself get burned out and, and practice really good self-care it, in terms of, you know, so if you do see a lot of clients that are, that are heavy going and that you, because, of course, to some degree, you're going to empathize. And, you know, after a while of kind of empathizing with people in a, in a dark and, or sad place or a difficult place, it can weigh heavy. So practicing what you know, um, giving yourself a good mindset clear out, um, you know, looking after yourself well, those sorts of things will help you be really strong and robust in, in creating a good, solid client roster. This is crucial advice. As far as I'm concerned, it's crucial, you know, really, really vital stuff. Um, I'm, I'm, and and, and I, I, I hope, that, you know, especially newly qualified people, don't just let that one fly. You know, don't just kind of let that one go over their head and think, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, I'll get to that when I need to. Because I think that's so important, you know, good support networks and things like that, you know, to ensure that we're not burning out. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Yeah, I just wanted to labour that a bit. I'm sorry to interrupt. No, not at all. I mean, it, it is so easy to overestimate what you're capable of, particularly if you come from a background of, you know, really hard graft and you're used to working 12 hour days or whatever. You think you're going to be able to transfer it to therapy. And I certainly thought I would be able to transfer it to therapy and found very quickly that the emotional energy that's required um, is is much more taxing than you might anticipate. So, yeah, yeah absolutely. Self-care is a, it's a biggie. Um, for me, possibly the biggest thing that I would 
come back and tell my past self would be, you know, don't take responsibility for your clients. Yeah. Don't take responsibility for their outcomes. I have a ring of, of um, reflective practice forms from, you know, sort of, but I phoned them, I emailed them, I chased them up, I gave them all this material and they just weren't doing their homework, you know, and I didn't, they didn't get a great outcome. You know, how was I, how did I create that? How was I responsible for that? You know, yeah. and, you know, and so I ended up kicking myself thinking, you know, what am I doing wrong? How am I getting this so wrong? And really what I was doing was not being firm enough and not making it clear enough that the client is always responsible. You know, it's the same in coaching. The client is always, always responsible ultimately for, for their own outcomes. You know, we can give them all the tools that, that they need, um, yeah. but we can't force them to practice them. We can't force them to focus in, and engage. Um, and, you know, kicking yourself for your client not doing what they said they wanted to do um, is a surefire way of, of feeling dreadful, being worried about your next client, being worried about your own capability. Um, so, yeah, the, the moment came where I thought, you know, actually, you know, this, this one is on you. This is what you do um, in order to achieve the outcome that you want to achieve. Um, and I'm going to let you go off and do that, you know. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, so... And yeah, so for that, that is a huge one. Um, not kicking yourself about your clients' outcomes, particularly if they just, you know, are not um, ready for, for their therapy. You know, sometimes there just isn't a way. You know, there's lots of things that we can do, but we can't force people, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, feeling feeling that that we are somehow responsible for for other people and beating ourselves up, it, I, I think is is a, again a, a really important point. Um, and a lot of people, you know, don't treat it like it is actually a collaborative process that, you know, uh, requires that, that the client to have some responsibility, um, um, you know, certainly equal amount as us. And yeah, it's really, really lovely to hear you say that. Um, tell, tell me a little bit. Um, what are your thoughts about evidence based approaches to hypnosis? I mean, you've sort of touched upon it a little bit. Um, um, yeah, what are your thoughts about that? Um. I'm probably a little bit strident about it, particularly in in a hypnotherapy context. So if you are, you know, if you are using hypnosis or hypnotic techniques as part of something else, then perhaps not so much, um, particularly in terms of coaching. But for hypnotherapy, it's uh, the whole field is sadly sullied by a lot of misconception and a, a bit of woo. And so mm. I'm all for experimenting, you know. I but I. I kind of resent this idea that hypnotherapy is a fringe therapy. Um, so, you know, I'm all for experimenting. I think if people didn't do that, the field wouldn't expand and it wouldn't grow. But we have this enormous number of studies that firmly evidence the efficacy of hypnosis and hypnotic techniques. Yeah. Um, you know, so if we can show, like really show that this particular technique works for this particular problem, then surely that should be our... our our front line of approach with with a client. I mean, you wouldn't go along to a GP with a headache and expect him to, uh, I don't know, prescribe hanging with your head over a bath for half an hour because his auntie told him that was a good way. You, you, you know, you'd want to scan and 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 proper evidence care and painkillers if you needed them. Um, you know, and then perhaps try some alternative approaches if that doesn't work or if if no difference is being made. And I, you know, we are if we want to develop credibility. In this profession, we need to have that same approach. In my opinion, um, we need to be using evidence base where we can, wherever we can. Um, and that's not to say that there isn't a place for kind of getting your chakras in a row. Yeah. But you know, if there is evidence, let's use that first. And perhaps 
primarily make sure the client is aware. So, you know, quite often the client doesn't have any clue when a, a technique is supposed to be effective or not. Um, and, you know, being able to say, look, there's this study um, that evidences that if you do this technique, you know, you're very likely to have a great outcome, for instance, with habit reversal and things like that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the client being aware, and also it's, it's the ethical thing to do, um, that if there is no evidence for a particular approach, like for instance, I think you've had Felix on your podcast, haven't you, and his, yeah. his um, hypnotic boob job. I mean, he was very ethical in the way he approached that. And he said, you know, I have no idea if this is going to work, but if it can work, let's give it a go, you know. So I think the client being aware is, is supremely important. Um, and actually utilizing this vast wealth of evidence that we do have um, and being clear about that will, what will be what kind of drives us forward into credibility as a um, as a profession. Yeah, I think, um, you know, you make some you make some really important points there with regards to um, um, your work then and the direction that you've gone on. Um, and we're going to start exploring that. We're going to have a look in a bit more depth at that um, in a short while. But tell us, where can people go, first of all, just to learn more about your work and, and your approach? Uh, well, you know, come and have a conversation with me is, is what I would say. Um, I love speaking with people because when you when you say to people, I'm a coach. Well, hang on, what, 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 you're, you're talking about real life human interaction here. Yeah, real life human interaction, absolutely. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, that that is what I love, you know. So when you're explaining to somebody that, that you're a coach, people just really don't have any clue what it is. I mean, I didn't have any clue what it was until I'd experienced it. And so actually directly experiencing coaching is how you get a really good feel for what it is and, and what you can achieve with it. Yeah. Um, so, you know, email me. Um, my email address is lucy.hyde at rocketmail.com. Yeah. Um, come and see me on Facebook or visit my website at www.provokingcoaching.com and go and follow my blog there too. Provoking Coaching. Um, what we will do is uh, there will be links to these uh, on this uh, particular uh, um, page of, of, of this episode um, um, where you'll be able to go and explore and have a look at some of the stuff that Lucy does. Um, um, some of her blogs, um, blog articles are, are really awesome and I think they'll inspire you to get in touch with her. Now we're going to be back with Lucy and we're going to uh, explore a bit more of that approach in just a short while. For now, thank you very much indeed, Lucy Hyde. Really enjoyed that. Um, now we'll be back with Lucy for our professional discussion shortly. Now let's have a look at this week's hypnosis in the news. Just a couple of stories for you this week. Um, our first story um, is entitled Baylor Researcher Using Hypnosis as Means of Treatment. Fairly generic title, but this refers to Gary Elkins, um, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at Baylor University, has recently been using hypnotic audio recordings to help his patients reduce pain. Um, specifically, his research is focused on using clinical hypnosis to treat symptoms that postmenopausal women face, like hot flushes and the inability to sleep. Um, in Elkin's 2013 study funded by the National Institute of Health, 187 women were randomized into two camps. One received hypnosis as a treatment for hot flushes and the other group received um, 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 and met up with a therapist for what they refer to as structured attention. 
Um, in that study, Elkin says, and I'll quote him, we found that hot flushes had decreased by approximately 70% at the end of treatment. And then the three-month follow-up self-reported hot flushes had decreased by nearly 80%. We also found that women's sleep improved. And, you know, for me, that's just wonderful to read. It's, it's lovely. And Elkins continues to research this field. I've certainly encountered his work a great deal um, within my own PhD studies. It's been quite interesting to, to look at the difference as to whether hypnosis recordings can actually be deemed self-hypnosis or not. Um, um, because really they're not totally self-directed. They're more in the classification or category of you know, hypnotist not present, you know, that, that the individual being hypnotized is still being guided, so to speak, and not doing it wholly self-directed. So for me, that doesn't really count as being self-hypnosis. Just a personal add-on to that little snippet there. So this week's second news story is entitled, What is the Science Behind Hypnosis? And often when I see a title like that, I, you know, I, I get this sort of due sense of dread at, at, you know, is someone going to claim that they're being scientific when they are not actually being? But the, um, um, the, the article that features in the Huffington Post um, what's the science behind hypnosis? It originally appeared on Quora, the, um, the sort of questions and answers website. Um, um, and um, um, th their strapline is, ask a question, get a great answer. Um, learn from experts and access insider knowledge. And um, this was responded to and the response has formed this particular article. And in it, um, um, hypnosis is, is referred to as a real um, phenomenon, um, whereby, um, and the opening line said, even animals can be hypnotized. And again, I, you know, I, I was thinking, ah, oh, where are we going with this? Um, however, however, to my delight, the, the subsequent paragraphs focused in on some of my favourite subjects, and that was the, the Stroop task. And I'll quote the article. In a remarkable experiment reported in the New York Times, subjects were given the post-hypnotic suggestion that they would see words that would appear incomprehensible as if in a foreign language. They were then put in a brain scanner and asked to perform the Stroop test, in which one reads aloud the colour of words, but not the test, not the text. Um, um, if you go and read the article, you can actually see a, uh, an example of the Stroop test, um, the Stroop tasking. And um, if you're not familiar with it, you know, I strongly advise that any hypnosis professional become familiar with, with the Stroop tasking. Um, um, because it, it really tells us a lot about, about hypnosis. Um, when the words of the Stroop test are in a foreign language, the task is, is easy. But when they're in your native language, it's almost impossible to do it correctly, at least do it really quickly, due to the sort of interference effect that um, causes the meaning of the words to take priority over the visual colour. And, and so hypnosis has been used, and I've mentioned this before on Hypnosis Weekly, hypnosis has been used to inhibit that. And the references to that experiment within that particular article are lovely. Um, I mean, it does go on to, to a couple of areas that, that, that are not so lovely in my opinion, but um, I thought that was a great article and very much worth a read. And links to these stories are listed under this week's podcast entry on www.hypnosis-weekly.com. That's Hypnosis Weekly with a hyphen in the middle and dot com. So next up, we have this week's professional discussion. 
I welcome back Lucy Hyde and get to ask her about her coaching work, her approach and how it actually fits in with being a hypnotherapist. I warn you though, I think I was forgetting that this was actually for a podcast and in the end was asking questions for my own benefit. Anyway, here is this week's professional discussion with Lucy Hyde. Enjoy. So I'm delighted that we are back now with Lucy Hyde. And, um, you know, when I, when I sort of uh, approach people with regards to coming on um, uh, onto and featuring with Hypnosis Weekly, um, I, you know, usually I have some sort of agenda and I have some sort of idea about the things that I would like to talk about and the things that I would like to, to explore with our, our guests. And um, Lucy's been a really, a really amazing advocate for, for coaching and, and her approach is something that I find intriguing and fascinating. I want to ask about some of that today. And, um, you know, she, she, she has her own unique blend of, of, of coaching and her approach to coaching. And um, so, so first up, Lucy, can we just explore what, 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 what we mean by coaching? And, and just perhaps we could just, I, I could ask you, you know, with, with regards to your own approach, what, what's the difference between therapy and coaching? I mean, you, you have a good idea, I would say, um, as, as, good as, as good as many people, um, um, with regards to what, what I believe therapy is and, and, and how I approach therapy. Um, yeah. um, how, is, how is therapy that I do, for example, different to the kind of coaching that, 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 that you and colleagues such as yourself do? Okay, so um, there is no kind of hard definition between the two um so it's i think of it like a continuum um but when people ask me i tend to say that the difference comes at the line of okay so in therapy someone will come along and see us with a problem um that they want some help resolving and their 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 ultimate goal is to feel okay again um and for people in these situations just feeling okay is, is huge it's it's you know um, it would be life-changing for them. Yeah. Coaching is no different in that it is life-changing, but it begins at that line of okay. So um, we're talking about people who don't necessarily have any big difficulties in their lives. They're functioning very highly already, usually. Um, it, it's not to say that they don't have any problems. I mean, everyone, you know, there are pockets of problems um, mm. for, for almost everybody. But so coaching begins at this line of, you know, you're already doing all right. Let's see what we can create. So, from right. yeah, so so from there, so rather than presenting a problem or an issue, they're yeah. they're almost presenting a direction, a, 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 an idea, and a vision that they want to you know they want to excel at or drive and explore. Absolutely. So people have ideas. So many people about what they could possibly do um, with their lives. So you know, they may be dissatisfied with their job or dissatisfied with some aspect of their life or feel like they're being held back or that they're holding themselves back from achieving all the things that they could achieve um, that would make them deeply happy uh, with their life and the way that they live. And so coaching explores that. Mm. It explores right at the edges of people's potential. Um, what could possibly, um, what could you possibly achieve? 
And so, and with regards to this, I mean, this idea um, of exploring, I mean, I mean, I've used the term and you've used it a couple of times there, the notion of exploring rather than, rather than directing, because I think, you know, as a therapist, very often we, we're, we're, we're guiding, directing and offering up a treatment plan and, and helping the client with that sort of direction and it goes in. Is it, is it, is, is it as strong, is it as strong in coaching as it is in therapy with regards to that? No, not at all. I'd say that's probably one of the significant differences between the two is that coaching is, you know, always client led. So they are the ones in charge of their own vision. They are the ones who know what they want to achieve. And a coach is there to help them do that. Um, That's not to say that there aren't uh, techniques or that you don't have to be really hard on your clients sometimes and say the things to them that they don't want to hear. But it is always led by them and they do, um, you know, they, I have uh, a set of agreements, like a framework, if you like, in place um, in terms of my, my own coaching clients so that they are very aware that where they come to the, um, come to the experience of coaching, um, they are responsible for themselves. So a lot of the things that you would um, potentially, as we were discussing before, have difficulties with, um, with a therapy client taking responsibility for their own actions um, always acting in integrity, um, those sorts of things are set out right at the at the very beginning. And so, once that framework is in place for the coaching client, then um, they have a, a safe space that they've created and, and a, um, a framework from, from within which they can explore and push themselves possibly harder um, than they ever have done before. I mean, it's an uncomfortable experience coaching with me. I had a client a couple of weeks ago um, that said it had felt like sitting on pins for six months. <laughs> so I'm not sure if that's if that's the best compliment. But, you know, in that edge, um, people grow. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, um, that's really interesting. Um, um, tell me about the sort of the, the sort of main characteristics of your own approach to coaching then you know um, um, how is it flavored what you know do you have a stance a leaning a, a series of preferences um, um, um how, how how is that um yes i do i mean coaching doesn't have the same uh types of uh evidence base it doesn't have the same solid associations that hypnosis does mm. um but there are certain uh, fundamental tenets that some coaches really adhere to strongly. Yeah. Um, I certainly do. And probably the foremost amongst those is the distinction between serving somebody and pleasing them. You know, so mm. as, yeah, it's, it's really powerful. So there's a, you create a very close working bond with a, cl- with a coaching client. And, you know, in, in that, space you you feel that you really do want to please them and you want to say things that that help them feel good and that's kind of high five um chest bumping stuff and yet you know that by doing that it doesn't necessarily serve them Mm. what will serve them the most is being the one person willing to say the things that even their best friend wouldn't tell them um yeah being yeah being being that person and being willing to get sacked as a result of it that is deep service and that is putting the client first yeah 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 uh, that's that's i mean i find that fascinating um um one of the other things that i know that you do um and and that, that I, I find absolutely intriguing um is is this idea of um um your coaching you go you go out walking with your clients um, I do. Um, and and you do a lot of your coaching when you're out in the real world as opposed to being in in an office for example 
Yeah. So t- tell me a little bit about that. You know, I, I mean, I mean, how do you do it? How is it proposed? And and, and you know, what what are the benefits of doing that? So. The way I coach is a combination. So I do I do work from an office quite often and, and we coach by Skype and things. But whenever a client is able to do it, um, I love to coach face-to-face, one-on-one. And we go walking together. And the primary reason that I do that is because it knocks people out of their habitual environment. Um, so people can get really wound up and caught up with this idea of, you know, get up, go to work, do all the things that you have to do. And never for a moment do they question um the underlying assumptions that they've made um, that by continuing with those, they continuing they are continuing with this life that they are perhaps uninspired by or dissatisfied with. Um, and so knocking people out of their, their usual environment, taking them right away from that into somewhere in nature, it's certainly my preference. Mm. And we walk barefoot quite often for miles and miles. Um, you know, not, not every client can manage barefoot, but they you know, often have a good go. Yeah. And, so, and we talk while we're walking and, and being open uh, to the environment, so being able to look out over a beautiful vista has this beautiful way of having people reassess what they really want. Yeah. Because people never seem to want what they think they want. And mm-hmm. part of a, a deep and powerful coaching process is to pare down and down and down and down until you find out about somebody's secret dream the thing that they really, really want, the why behind the why. Mm. Mm. And, um, and, and I mean, I'm guessing there are are all kinds of benefits to just moving, you know, I I mean, I remember, I I remember an old school NLP strap line once that was, you know, motion creates emotion. So, you know, people that were coming from therapy that were learning NLP and suddenly were being asked to sort of, to sort of stand up and move around with clients, um, for example, um, um, it was it was very different. Um, um, is there an element of that? Is it is you know is the truth in that? Is there you know do you find that when people are up and moving around, it's it's different than you know for for, for other physiological reasons perhaps than just just when they're when they're sat in an office. Definitely. I mean, I have no evidence for for the mechanism behind that, but I have found without a doubt that when people are moving. Um, when people are able to breathe fresh air, where there are natural things around them, people become more creative. Yeah. Uh, and people find it easier to, to free themselves up from rigid thinking patterns and habits. And they start questioning um, things that they perhaps would otherwise take for granted. You know, why am I carrying on doing this job that's making me miserable? Um, you know, why am I choosing when I don't have to choose? those sorts of things you know why am I limiting my ideas of what I can earn or, or why aren't I doing this thing I always wanted to do um, and it just yeah it seems to shake everything loose and, and brings more um, creativity and imagination into play yeah yeah um, um, so so you know with that in mind with that in mind and that approach and and, and, and you know this really intriguing and fascinating approach as far as coaching is concerned tell me you know, does hypnosis fit in there? Um, I, I mean, and, and if so, how? Yeah, it's inseparable. Um, what we were speaking about earlier about you know hypnosis not being ritualistic. It doesn't need to have a trance. Um, you know, you can do it while you're walking. There's absolutely well, of course, you know hypnosis while running. Um, mm. So absolutely, I, the 
the power of coaching largely comes from the ability to visualize something different, to be able to click your mindset into a place somewhere different, thinking differently. Um, and these are all things that are augmented by um, using hypnotic techniques. Um, and it, you know, it doesn't even have to be while I'm out walking during an intensive day with the client. We can even do that over Skype where they're you know, sort of feeling like they're you know, butting up against a brick wall and not able to think their way around an issue that they're having. And so I'll just say, okay, just take a moment, deep breath, close your eyes as you breathe out. Imagine how this would be. Yeah. 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 Um, um, and, and, but just perhaps not done in the same, in the same sort of fashion that it might be done in a therapy room. Exactly. And, and quite often, I don't even call it hypnosis. I mean, all of my clients know that I'm also a hypnotherapist. Um, but those techniques are things that are, are utilized in coaching anyway, by people who don't know that it's also utilized in, in hypnotherapy. Yeah. Um, and occasionally a client will come up against an intractable problem and I will utilize hypnotherapy and call it such from within a session. Um, and it, it has this remarkable ability of just unlocking, you know, um, really difficult problems. So we can then move on and, and carry on with the client achieving um, the things that they want to achieve and, and getting these little issues out of the way. So absolutely, you know, it's very easy for, to flick from um, a powerful coaching space into hypnosis and back again mm, mm. and the kind of directions that you know that that people want to go in as far as you know to, to credibly learn about coaching um because you know I mean, I mean i'm going to be honest i think that that at times coaching is a separate entity from therapy has perhaps suffered from um has perhaps suffered from from a, a certain identity crisis or or, or or people having a certain perception of it i remember doing NLP trainings um, in the late 90s and and you know there were there were just huge swathes of people taking up life coaching um, life coaching qualifications and things and 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 getting involved in this um, um, that, you know is, 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 is that kind of life coaching and um, that sort of prevalence and prominence that it had for a lengthy period of time. Um, um, what's the what, what's the difference between what we can go and learn today and and what sort of directions can people you know expect to go in in order to learn it um, in incredible fashion and perhaps less of a sort of cattle market fashion? I think you know it's probably I couldn't agree more with you by the way. Uh, you know, coaching even more than hypnosis suffers with an identity crisis and and credibility issues. Absolutely. Um, and it's a source of endless frustration for me because the, the box that I suppose my, my career would be put in would be life coach. And you can see people recoil, <laughs> you know, you yeah. say, oh, you're one of those people that did a weekend NLP training and, and want to change my life, right? High five. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's a real, you know, so I, I never um, try and convince anyone that, that they need coaching because quite simply they don't. You know, powerful coaching comes from a place of not knowing that you need coaching because you're already okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, again, I, I also have some dismay about the coaching associations out there. I mean, it's great in terms of learning um, ethical standpoints, which are very similar to, to hypnosis, the ethical rules around coaching. But yeah. you know, so once you've got those nailed, it does seem to be, um, you know, one of those self-feeding industries, which can be a bit of a shame. Mm. Um, 
I would say it's probably one of the last apprenticeship only professions. You know, if you want to learn coaching, learn it powerfully. You find the most powerful coach and you apprentice yourself with them. Right. And um, go out and experience powerful coaching. Know what it is to have your life completely changed and then learn how to do that and then bring it back to your clients. Mm. There's a, a massive variety of backgrounds um, of various coaches and and different approaches. There's lots of crossover um, with uh, therapy in terms of ideology. So you'll have kind of analytic coaches and you'll have coaches that utilize a lot of CBT, but also coaches that, that almost uh, solely come from an NLP background. Um, a, a new um, a new one on the scene is is the three principles coaching, which kind of amalgamates a lot of NLP, perhaps with CBT and some spirituality in there too. So, really, um, you, there's no one qualification that you can look for and go, ah, nailed it. This coach is going to be absolutely brilliant. Um, go and have a coaching experience, and if you are moved, then you've been coached powerfully. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, you know, this is fascinating, and I could, um, I'm, I'm, you know, I, I, I'm very aware that I, I'm currently um, I'm starting to get into the place where I want to ask questions for my own benefit rather than the benefit of listeners. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, but that's awesome. I think we could speak and speak and speak. Um, um, but we're there with our time today again, Lucy. Um, um, thank you so much today. Thank you um, um, for sharing uh, so so much information as well. I really appreciate that. Um, 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 Lucy Hyde. I thoroughly enjoyed that discussion. Um, some fascinating information there. A link to Lucy's personal website and her contact details feature at the Hypnosis Weekly website. Now then, this week's Hypnosis Fact of the Week. Um, um, the fact of the week this week is about a real hero of mine. Uh, makes me smile just saying his name. I'm Emil Kue. He's a hero of mine because his work is a major contributor to the field of self-hypnosis. You know, it's a, a historical precursor. Um, and, and, and that happens to be my major professional love and the focus of my own research and, and much of my, my work and publications and so on. The fact of the week is simply this. Emil Kue rejected heterohypnosis. There, there you have it. Now, let me elaborate, however. He was part of the well-respected Nancy school of hypnosis that's a major part of the history of hypnosis, late 1800s, early 1900s. During his work with clients, Kue found that while he was working at the, the Nancy school of hypnosis and using hypnosis, Kuei found that individuals could simply reject suggestions if they chose and could not be hypnotized against their will. Um, um, so, so wisely, he chose to establish his approach as one which taught the individual how to communicate effectively with themselves. Okay, so, so using auto-suggestion was the, the, the notion that, that, that he termed. Kuei did lots of very cool stuff, um, including showing that he could enhance the efficacy of medicine by praising its effectiveness to the patients that he prescribed it to. You've got to love that. Um, but the fact of the week is that he actually rejected and moved away from heterohypnosis because he began to understand it properly. And he realized its fallibility with how he wanted to work. So that was today's fact of the week. But next up, finally this week, 
it's competition time. Oh yes, I have managed to acquire a surplus copy of the book Trance and Treatment by Spiegel. No, not the guy from the Hobbit films, but the respected researchers David and Herbert Spiegel. And that's now a prize for our upcoming competition. You may recall that last year, inspired by one of my favourite people on the planet, the Right Honourable Double-Hard Lord Gary Turner, followed his casual use of the word nifty in my interview, with, with me then um, I'm subsequently holding a competition whereby I asked you to listen out for me using the word snazzy. Now we're going to run that same competition with a different word. That is, when you hear me use a particular word that I'm just about to tell you in any upcoming episode of Hypnosis Weekly, the first person to email me and let me know it was spoken by me will get the prize. The word to listen out for is smart aleck. It's a double-barreled beauty. Smart Alec. When you hear me refer to that, whoever emails me first will get the book. But also, and, and perhaps more importantly, you'll get the kudos that goes with it. Yes, you'll be able to tell all your friends in the pub about winning this competition, and in return, they will look at you with vacant or quizzical expressions. Next week, I'll be welcoming hypnosis professional and recent darling of the media, Deborah Sims, who will be sharing with us her insights and experiences of specialising in and treating tinnitus using hypnosis. I interview her and we look at her approach in depth. You are in for a treat, I assure you. I have many more exciting guests that will welcome to Hypnosis Weekly in coming weeks too. We'll be discussing, debating, celebrating and above all, remaining friends. To repeat, all the references made in the discussions along with related links are posted at each episode on the Hypnosis Weekly website www.hypnosis-weekly.com. I absolutely welcome your thoughts, comments, suggestions and questions, so do please message me or add them on the Hypnosis Weekly website and I'll make sure they are addressed, answered and explored accordingly. Please do share this podcast on Facebook, Twitter and anywhere else and really help us reach the hypnosis field. My thanks once again go to Lucy Hyde. Thanks to you for tuning in. My name's Adam Eason. This has been Hypnosis Weekly. Until next time, goodbye for now. Mm -hmm.